Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of The Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And big news for us this week is we are finally on Spotify. Yay! So exciting. <laughs> I know, for some reason that took a so while. Cool. To to so cool. So cool. And then for it to come up and I just click. That's where I first discovered podcasts with Spotify. Oh really? Guilty Fem feminist is where i found that and also a history podcast that i still love now and i only listen to those two on spotify just to keep the tradition very cool yeah so g what has this week meant to you other than the exciting spotify (laughs) (laughs) so this week has been um, an amalgamation of things uh i know it's a great word uh firstly i think i'm going to start off by saying that i went to see taylor swift on saturday which was really exciting and another last minute concert (laughs) so good she is so talented high energy it was absolutely fantastic i had a blast and as usual it was over too soon it was great (laughs) oh and robbie williams came on stage which was amazing and they had a duet it was so good um angels oh i know everyone was screaming like belting it so it's so good um, it reminds me of discos, you know, the awkward, the yes, slow, six. slow dance. I, t- I took um, two 13-year-old girls with me and I turned to them when the song came on. I said, oh, guys, do you know the song? And they're like, no. <laughs> oh, no. It's like, I know, I was like, I know, it's a millennials song. <laughs> Dare I use the M word. Um, <laughs> um, also for me this week, um, I've just been watching, I think, like the rest of the world in shock, really, with the whole immigration scenario in America and been trying to educate myself exactly as to the loopholes and the law that allowed this to happen. Mm. Um, awful images, awful videos. So just to explain what exactly what actually happened. Is that, to... yes, in order to um, try and prevent, this is in such a nutshell, but in order to prevent um, immigrants from Central America coming to the border, um, they would, without telling them first, take their children away from them. Did you see the cover of Time magazine? Oh, what a know, cover. huge Trump, tiny, I mean, gosh. Tiny little boy just yeah. crying. Yeah, awful. Um, and also, as of yesterday, uh, Germany have been knocked out of the World Cup, which is fairly unsettling as they're always my backup team. Um, <laughs> so England have now got to do well because so I don't have a backup team. My mum is half German, but just for context. Sweepstake. So what's your sweepstake team? Portugal and Argentina. They can be your backups. Yeah, they can be my backups, which is true. Or we can just have England, you know, bring, it, bring it home. So hopefully, um, I live in hope for that. So what has your week meant to you, Shah? This week, I've been thinking quite a lot about healthcare for various different reasons. First mm. of all, Jacinda Arden had her baby. I know. Little girl. Neve. Oh, that's such a cute name. It is a really cute name. Uh, so we talked about her in last week's episode and discussed her pregnancy and maternity leave. Who's Prime Minister of New Zealand. Second yes. ever Prime Minister to give birth in office. And first ever Prime Minister to take maternity leave. Yeah. 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 Um, and... We've also obviously had the Theresa May giving 20 billion more a year to the NHS. That's been quite controversial. It's sort of something that probably yeah. should have happened a very long time ago. So anything that the government does at the moment is just, it's not really celebrated. It's just sort no. of, I mean, I think, I think just the whole feeling around the government and Brexit and the NHS, yeah. like whatever happens, people are just like, mm. and, and. 
Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's the wrong reaction. Like, to be honest, I feel like my faith is slightly dampened at this point in time as well. But I feel mm. like, yeah. It, well, I think it has been a, a really brilliant reminder of um, what we have with the NHS. And obviously oh, it is so unique full, to It's full of problems, but the people who work there are just absolutely phenomenal. And 1.4 million of them. Mm. Yeah. Just, yeah, amazing. And the other thing I have been looking at this week is um, a podcast by Emma Gannon with Adam Kay mm -hmm. on Control-Alt-Delete. And it was just such a funny podcast. It was about his book, which is called This Is Going To Hurt. And it's just full mm. of stories from all of his patients. Some of them are a bit disgusting. Most of them are hilarious. <laughs> I don't quite know how he's got away with telling these stories. I think he's had to change the details. Definitely. And sort of mix them up have to, have to a point where you can't recognise. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that was also very, very good. I find that fascinating when, when you hear actually about real life patient stories and the, the sort of horrors that can go wrong, even though I actually mm. don't want to know what goes wrong. Yeah. You kind of do. It's like morbid <laughs> fascination. Yeah. <laughs> and the final thing to say is that uh, we have an update on Justice for Nora. Finally. So uh, Justice for Nora we've talked about in other previous episodes as well, in our first episode on the mm. death penalty. And do you want to just explain yeah, what so, happened? Yeah, so Nora um, is now a 19-year-old uh, Sudanese woman. Um, she was 16, I believe, when she was forced to marry um, uh, a man who was, I think, 31. And essentially, uh, after raping her, uh, the second time it happened, she, in self-defence, stabbed him. He died as a result of that injury, um, and then she was sentenced to death. And uh, a huge campaign was started to try and raise awareness for this. And finally, we have got the news that she is now not going to be sentenced to death, um, but she will still face five years in jail and a £14,000 fine. And the family of her husband, who died, is appealing this decision, which means that technically there is still a possibility that she is susceptible to the death penalty. So we just really want to remind everyone to keep signing the petition, keep sharing it. Uh, keep talking about keep it. Talking about it's not over yet. It's not over yet. But it is very good news. Absolutely. It's mm. a step in the right direction yeah. for sure. But again, £14,000. I mean... Yeah, that's so much money. That's so much money and five years in prison Yeah. for defending yourself against rape is just absolutely appalling. I know. Absolutely appalling. But less appalling than the death penalty. Absolutely. So. Death penalty is final. So that's definitely good. Um, yeah. So power of social media. I yeah. Mean, literally. Incredible. This is a viral campaign. The first figure that we're going to be talking about today is Edna Adan Ismail who is, I think, 81 now yes. and has started her own hospital in Somaliland, where she comes from, and is just one of the most inspiring people I think I've ever heard about. Mm. She is an activist against FGM. As um, well as being a midwife. She was the yeah. first nurse and midwife to come back to Somaliland, yes, I think. Yes, first she... female to ever qualify as a nurse who was from Somaliland. And Somaliland was a British protectorate um, until 1960. And it was then, I think, then joined with um, Somalia, which was under Italy's rule. Um, and very quickly, the clash of, I suppose, culture, uh, the style of government... Uh, became very apparent and then they entered a civil war mm. 
for 30 years, from 61 until 91, until it was then given its own sovereignty back as Somaliland in 91. So she came from, uh, I suppose, a country that had a very mixed uh, background, a very kind of brutal history, mm. and where women's rights are definitely not uh, how they are in the West. And where 98% of women are subject to female genital mutilation. The NHS defines FGM as a procedure where female genitals are deliberately cut, injured or changed, but for no medical reason. And there are four types. Um, And I won't go into them in so much detail, but it basically involves different parts of... um, Female genitals being either removed or, uh, in some ways, the vaginal passage being narrowed or shrunk and therefore subsequently stitched together in order to preserve dignity or virginity or in order to purify or to take away sexual pleasure from women. And there is no religious text uh, across the entire world that condones it. So this is not something that's to do with Islam or any other religion. Any other religion. Um, the reason I cite Islam is because it's an Islamic country. Mm. Um, and it is actually very brutal and very uh, severe. And in the UK, it is a completely against the law and falls under child harassment and abuse. But unfortunately, it still happens, which I just... Mm. In, in, and the UK as and well. And the UK. But yeah, so Edna <clears throat> was actually subject to this herself when she mm. was only eight. Yes. And she talks about this in her Desert Island Disc, which mm. I would so highly recommend i know it's lovely absolutely fantastic and this is how i first found out about her and there are all sorts of brilliant i didn't know it was from desert island discs Mm. oh of course it is the genius (laughs) of desert island discs (laughs) Uh, but she tells all sorts of really interesting stories and so she was married to the president or prime minister i'm not sure what terminology they use Mm. um of somaliland and she was a working first lady she continued to work in um the hospitals Mm -hmm. she also had loads of um reproductive issues which meant that she wasn't able to have her own children but the way that she talks about it is just so wonderful to hear and she basically says that every Mm. child that she delivers and there's now been over twenty two thousand children born in her hospital Mm. she sees as her own children and she also talks about how if she had had children she probably wouldn't have had the time and the dedication and the passion in the Mm. same measure in order to start her own hospital a lot of which she did when she retired a lot of female philanthropists say that actually the ones Mm. who haven't had children they've said well this has become kind of my purpose and 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 what i my calling um and i think what's interesting here is is all about obviously female empowerment and fighting for female rights but actually her biggest inspiration is always her father and her father was a doctor and she was therefore doctor's daughter and was very highly sought after and sort of thought of and she cites by potential people to want to marry her do you mean yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and just her social class i suppose mm-hmm. and she used to say that her father put her their her his patients before everyone including his firstborn which was her and all of his family he said mm-hmm. every single patient is the most important thing to me um do not ever treat them with anything less than the respect that you would for your own mm. child and um, she also talks about how he as a doctor would always say i wish i had this hospital with these um, equipment this equipment the staff and, the yes. dedication the time and, and that's so, why she and she's built this hospital yeah. and it's now ranked the 13th best hospital in the whole of africa shockingly uh 
during the civil war, um, over half a million Somali landers lost their lives. Gosh. So it's definitely the backdrop of her building this hospital was one of... Civil war. Yeah. Mm. And it was very needed. Mm. But it's not just um, a hospital for mothers and babies, although that's what it opened as, because they actually had this old man who had been knocked over by a donkey cart come in. He was bleeding. And they obviously treated him, helped him. Mm. And they do treat other people. They also, if the person can afford it, they ask them to pay. But for lots of people, they can't afford it and they treat them for free. Mm. And she's actually funded so much of the hospital from selling every sort of possession that she owned, mm, including she her jewellery. Yeah. And what I love is that she says, I don't need my jewellery. We use my jewellery every day in the form of these sinks and toilets and corridors oh, and all so of the equipment amazing. that has been able to go into this hospital. So the Edna Adam Foundation is the charity that we have chosen for July. And the action that is going to go along with this is that we're both going to donate blood. Blood is just invaluable. If you can give blood, I highly encourage you to do that. One of my best friends has donated 10 times in her life. And I've never donated, so... Um, yeah, and it's it's really important to do so. It's really easy and it's just so important. My mum has received, I think, three blood transfusions in her life, which have saved her life. It's a very simple and effective way of making mm. a massive difference. Mm. Um, and also, another thing that's really important is also donating platelets but you can only do this at hospital because uh they only survive for about three days after you've donated whereas blood can actually survive for i think up to 28 days um in the right temperature and the right conditions and platelets are really really important because this is what actually stops bleeding and forms clots this charity is something that i've actually donated to in the past because my dad set up a charity account called CAF in order to encourage my brother and i to think about giving to charity and I had forgotten that this existed and then came across it and then was able to choose some charities and donate the money to them. And the Edna Adam Foundation was the one that I ended up giving the most to. Mm -hmm. And in return, I received this absolutely beautifully written card, which I'm actually going to read out. I brought it with me. I also got four photographs of um, people, gorgeous people women. working at the hospital. Yeah, gorgeous. So it says... Dear Miss Lorimer, this is a belated but no less sincere note of thanks for your generous donation, which was received by the Edna Adam Foundation on the 6th of December 2017. I just wanted to put down in words our heartfelt appreciation for your gift, the value of which to the people whom our charity serves is truly immense. I've had the privilege of witnessing firsthand the incredible work of the Edna Adam Hospital over many years. Now, at the Edna Adam University, almost a thousand students are being trained as nurses, midwives, doctors, anaesthetists, pharmacologists, lab technicians, dentists, public health workers, and more. They are the foot soldiers leading a movement for improved healthcare in Somaliland and across the whole of Africa. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you for supporting our movement by helping us train more health professionals to serve where the need is greatest we are so grateful for your support every good wish sarah and it's just written in the lovely. most beautiful handwriting and it just it made me cry when i received that yeah that's absolutely lovely so we just wanted to finish this section by reading out a quote from desert island discs mm -hmm. on one of one kirsty young's wonderful introductions i know so uh, g yes and this was a quote to describe edna adnan and she describes her as tough as General Petraeus, compassionate as the Pope, as tire tireless as Michael Phelps, as beautiful as Tina Turner, 
and with a work ethic to rival Bill Gates. And that is quite a comparison. But what I also think is worth saying is that she is so her own person. Mm. She is so feisty and passionate about what she does. And I just think that we can all learn so much from this remarkable woman. Absolutely. The second figure this week is that if you were to uncoil a human being's DNA, it would reach 10 billion miles, which is the same distance from Earth to Pluto and back again. Isn't that astonishing? It's so cool and it's such a long way. It kind of freaks me out that that's inside me. I mean, they're yeah. like, Ugh. I know. Yeah. Amazing though. Mm. So should we just start off with what is DNA? Okay, so DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. Which I remember learning how to spell in all the biology classes. That was a struggle and I made it through. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and essentially it is a helical structure made up of... Uh, nucleosides, which are basically protein compounds. DNA uh, combine and they create sequences that make up our genes, which then determine what our inherited traits are. Very lovely explanation. Thank you. So how was DNA discovered and who were the people who were involved? Now, I have a vested interest in reporting this correctly because at school I was house captain and my house was Franklin after Rosalind Franklin. Really? Yes. yes. I, I'm sure I've told you that no, before, you but I kept that nugget for, oh. for the recording. <laughs> That's so lovely. Um, I was very proud of that. She was born in 1920 to... Um, in all of the research though, it's, that's said about her, she was born into an affluent family. She actually went to a school that was fairly local to mine, called St Paul's Girls. And she was incredibly important um, in discovering the structure of DNA because there were several cha- chains of thought, no pun intended. They knew that it existed, mm. um, but they actually didn't know what its specific structure and was. And they didn't know that it was the double helix, which is, could have been a triple helix. Which is basically these two lines, and then they sort of twist into a mm. kind of staircase mm. shape. And the reason they do that is each strand, one goes, is coding from north to south, the other is south to north. Um, and they do that because they're it's essentially opposite and equal mm-hmm. that's why they can combine and that's why and they, they make, twist yeah that's why they twist that's why the hydrogen bonding occurs in between them yeah um and i wanted to start with her because i think a lot of people know about this kind of controversy in that the nobel prize was actually awarded to watson and crick and one of her close colleagues maurice watkins and was not awarded to franklin mm. and there were two reasons for that one reason is that she was actually... She had died by the time that they were awarded... Was she 36 when she died? I seven. Think. And yeah. of ovarian cancer. And the second reason is that you're only allowed to award it to three people for one yeah. project. So even if she had been alive, the thought was mm. that she wouldn't have been given it because mm. she was a woman. And her colleague Watkins, who was working with her at King's, he was working on something called the A form and mm-hmm. she was working on the B form. Yeah. And I listened to this really brilliant episode of In Our Time by Melvin Bragg, which so talks good. about Rosalind Franklin. And he gets on this huge panel of really fascinating people and mm. they're just experts in their field and they talk all about her. And so one of the things they were talking about was that in Cambridge, there was more of an attitude of working together, bouncing ideas off each other and working collaboratively. Which is where Watson and Crick were working. Whereas Watkins and Rosalind Franklin were working in 
King's, Kings which was more separate. Mm. And she went to Cambridge University um, to do chemistry mm-hmm. as an undergrad. Um, although to note, she wasn't actually, she didn't technically graduate because women weren't allowed to at the time. She got a diploma. I know. Uh, awful. Um, <laughs> I was just she, shaking my head to that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, and so she actually published a lot of papers while she was there. Um, she left Cambridge, went to King's, and at King's they had a terrible culture of kind of what they say in the podcast as bloke and bar culture, which is all the men would go to the bar, they would chat about their ideas and what they were doing, and science is a massively collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it's very rare that you have one scientist who discovers one thing yeah. and that carries out the, its entire, mm. for, for their entire career. You know, you go back to even the Renaissance and like people like Louis Pasteur and all of these great uh, scientists, they all go to these conferences and they're presenting yeah, and their they're research together. to each mm. other and that's how they build these mm. ideas. And, um, Kings was just not really like that for mm. her. Um, but actually, in, on that note, she did take this fantastic photograph, which we will link to our Instagram, at mm. Figure Podcast. And it was also her PhD student who yes, helped her exactly. do it. Yes, exactly. So it's her PhD. Ray Gosling. Yeah, so he was working with her. She was supervising mm. him. And they were working together on the B form. And it ended up that this photograph was influential of the A form type of DNA. Yes. And um, it was, yeah. I think shared with Watson and Crick without her knowledge without her knowledge and then that was what led them to sort of make the imaginative leap into this DNA structure being a Mm. double helix absolutely Uh, and she had been working previously um, on coal and been using x-ray crystallography to look at the structure of coal and, and why it was so and why it was so useful to us and how the atoms looked Mm. in x-ray so cool and it was really cool and you know that thing that one thing led, led to another i suppose mm. um and one thing that i really like the quote that that um that was said in the podcast is what's technically enshrined in the law isn't what actually happens and that was talking about the attitude behind um the belief about women scientists and mm. even though it's technically law that she can be at king's and she can be doing her research that's by no means yeah. what's embedded in the culture mm. and that goes for loads of different things and loads of different women in all different sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I listened to um, in relation to this was an episode of The Inquiry, which is another BBC podcast, which is really interesting. And the question that they were asking is, is gene editing out of control? And they had lots of people come on, sort of panel. And what I thought was the most interesting perspective was one of the guests saying that when it comes to gene editing, it's not something that you can open a tiny tiny bit in order to do things like help people with cystic fibrosis with Huntingdon's or with haemophilia Mm. which are all genetic diseases and Mm. can be cured Mm -hmm. am I right in saying that yeah or helped by gene editing so when these diseases happen it's essentially that the sequence of genes has got mutated mutated and it's Mm. gone wrong and it happens again and again and again which is why and that's why they have these conditions exactly you can't just necessarily give someone a lung transplant and then they're fine it will just that will keep Mm -hmm. on repeating itself um and also it just depends on sometimes with two people they have will have a recessive Mm. uh, allele or they'll have a certain trait that Mm -hmm. will lend towards it so it's very very difficult to treat yeah any kind of genetic but it's quite controversial because she was talking about how once you open this a tiny bit in order to help these individuals, it has the implications of mm. so many other controversial 
and moral and ethical questions that I think come this up. is your equivalent of the death penalty. I feel I feel as though yes. this is your conversation starter. It's such a good conversation Imagine if we were starter. let loose at a party. <laughs> Do you mean the death penalty? What do you think of gene editing? Like, who are these weird women? Being weird is much more interesting than being normal. True. Um, yeah, but I just think it is a very interesting thing to consider. And I've asked lots of people over the week about what their mm. views are. Um, I think almost all of whom have studied biomedicine, so I don't really feel like I've had the most varied opinions. <laughs> but I don't know. I think that maybe I consider the ethical implications of this more than someone who hadn't studied science because the responses that I've got is that I think it's a good thing because we're going to be able to help these individuals. Mm, I think that's a very scientific healthcare approach. Yeah. It's like, oh Whereas my I God, start we can do this. Questions. This is a massive issue for mm-hmm. so many people. And I don't disagree with that at all. Of course. But I'm so torn when it comes to this because I also yeah. think that the level of control that one company or one group of individuals or one country which doesn't have the same sort of regulation that say Britain has on this mm-hmm. could have as a result of gene editing I find absolutely terrifying. Now, can you just clarify what you mean by gene editing outside of the remit of haemophilia cystic fibrosis? So I'm talking about things like the phrase is designer babies mm-hmm. where you could basically create... Can I play devil's avocado? Yeah. <laughs> IVF Okay, yeah. that is a procedure that is, one could say, uh, controversial. I'm sure it was controversial when it was first proposed, mm-hmm. probably 50, 100 years ago, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that we were then, you know, arguably going against nature in order mm. to help people who had fertility issues. Yeah. And therefore, we were able to sort of uh, push through the barriers of science, like of science and actually being able to have these massive breakthroughs Mm -hmm. keeping that in mind what is the difference arguably between going from pre-ivf to having ivf now and going from introducing gene editing and gene sequencing as a treatment that's a very good question and i would agree that there are so many Mm. aspects of gene editing and i'm not saying they're comparable i'm just trying to think of an example that could be drawn in terms of similarities yeah and that we're kind of going against something Mm. there but i just find it a very weird concept that this we now have the capacity to choose which genes can be created in a certain embryo and which can't find that very very weird and if we're also creating you know ai which is going to true. take over very the world, very true and to be honest may take over humans at some point in the future and yeah we've created that yeah i and just think it's a great ne- and we did that through necessity in terms of trying to better or make our lives more efficient or our working lives more efficient mm. um so we therefore create artificial intelligence mm-hmm. this could be seen i think in a similar vein in the sense that we're oh we're trying to create a, a treatment mm-hmm. um eventually whether we want a treatment or not that breakthrough in science is also going to happen in the sense yeah. that we'll be able to design potentially babies that we have. Mm. And I completely agree with you that I don't necessarily agree with it ethically. I think I'm definitely... Yeah. In the sense that I just, just want to have a child just... that's just natural. <clears throat> but I don't know if that's something we can avoid. No. And obviously you wouldn't want to bring a human into the world who had cystic fibrosis if you knew that you could avoid that. Avoid it, exactly. 
So yeah, lots of big questions to ask around this. And I think the other thing that I find quite scary about it is that it's just so unknown. We don't know Mm. what the wider impact of this is going to be, especially when it comes to things like genetically modifying food, which happens a lot already. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of positive things about it. It can end up feeding many more people Mm. through... And that was something, you know, wartime that was created in wartime. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. We needed it. We needed Mm -hmm. a mass amount of food. We needed it quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But we just don't know what the impact is going to be. Exactly. We don't know what the impact is. Um, And it's the same with gene editing. And it's actually a really interesting debate. Mm. Uh, And I feel like I could talk about this for hours. Yeah. So should we stop now? Yeah, probably. that we're going to be talking about today is a recipe for chili sin carne and <laughs> for without and right yes yes and guacamole yeah so gee how yes. did you make this really delicious <laughs> chili sin carne chili sin carne yes so this i made with garlic onion chopped it up fried it with some oil uh then i threw in some asparagus uh, some, which is in season which and is in delicious. season some diced red peppers and then I used some mints uh, from Sainsbury's which is meat free uh, and, and then tomatoes and then I added chopped tomatoes and passata I also added smoked paprika chilli powder cinnamon and also uh, crucially my secret ingredient for any tomato based item <laughs> dish <laughs> dish what? what's that about <laughs> soy sauce Ah. Yes. And then rice. Yeah. Yeah. And I did the guacamole. Yes. Which I love. (laughs) So good. Um, And I did it with avocado and salt and pepper, chopped coriander, Mm -hmm. and I think half a lime. Absolutely. And it was was one avocado and half a lime. The photo is on our Instagram with all the other images. And uh, it was delicious. And Mm. the reason we made this recipe and wanted to include it in the podcast is because Shah and I are quite uh, interested, I I think would be the best way of saying it, of exploring a more plant-based diet, I would say. And it's cool to make dishes that are traditionally made with meat Mm -hmm. an alternative. So, for example, I love making carbonara, but... I guess the quote-unquote vegan version. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do you, how do you normally do that? What do you replace? You use um, chickpea water Ooh. with nutritional yeast okay. and a bit of uh, stock. Mm. And it, you just turn it over and over again. And then again, do you have a bacon really replacement? Do you use creamy. tempeh? Or? Use tempeh. Yeah. yeah. Which is soybeans. Well. Yeah. And then you uh, fry it like you would bacon. Yeah. Chop it up. And I put it in Caesar salad as well. Mm really nice yeah so yeah yeah. so that is that is why we made the recipe um i think and also we just love delicious food we do love delicious food (laughs) and i wanted to ask you a question about plant-based eating which is when did it first cross your periphery i was actually brought up vegetarian pescatarian i didn't know that until we were in bali this year yeah so Mm. until i was about seven I was pescatarian. We had a lot of fish fingers um, mm. and delicious Scottish smoked salmon, which I still eat, even though, but only when I'm at home, because mm. it's, for me, it's very much about where the food comes from. Mm-hmm. What, you know, who am I buying it from? How, 
has it been processed or not processed and all of that and where I live in Scotland it's just incredible we've got so many lovely farm shops and we've got an amazing vegetable garden which my mum just it's like her third child. It is. It is like her third child. It is. It's great out there, though. It is so it's really as, as a Londoner and having grown up in the centre of London my whole life, going to mm. Scotland, I feel as though I'm literally the most country bumpkin ever. We're actually really broad. <laughs> I'm just going into the vegetable garden. And that's about it. And crossing some cow paths, but I love it. Um, whereas, whereas, I guess, alternatively, I am from central London and grew up in central London. We do not have farm shops or anything like that. Mm. Uh, Although it's a brilliant farmer's market. Well, I mean, as a child, I was raised uh, with a very strict diet. Um, everything was probably organic. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's good, but organic does not mean sustainable. Mm. Organic does not necessarily mean uh, that the animal has been no. fed properly or treated well. And it's also certainly not great for the planet either. Yeah, uh, My parents are incredibly strict with pretty much everything weird, they gave me. It's a very weird me. label because you've got lots and lots of regulations that you've got to meet in order to be able to call yourself organic. Yeah, I know. And our favourite farm shop, our Dross, mm. um, which is down the road from us, they're not organic, but they essentially are organic. Like, they're... Mm. The, you know, apples and carrots and cabbage that you get from them is probably better in terms of nutrients than mm. an organic Absolutely. something that and, you buy from a supermarket also, but with free range chickens and sort of buying mm -hmm. eggs and things free range yeah is a square meter i know which is ridiculous it's not free if you range think how big a chicken is like mm. it well it should be the size never normally yeah that's 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 come on that I mean, that's yeah so um, so you really do need to read into mm. these things and, and i think that my awareness for that really only started oh when i was probably 19 so i've been okay. vegetarian for three years mm -hmm. uh i was raised actually eating quite a lot of meat now i think back at it on it i had chicken mm -hmm. lamb pork uh, we had roast every week. We yeah. had bolognese every week. We had sausages every week. Mm -hmm. And I could only eat meat. Um, I was talking to my dad about this, actually. He was like, he was so fussy when it came to eating meat from the bone. Couldn't do it. I would just be at the table for hours. The only way they could get me to eat it was by dangling one lone <laughs> chocolate digestive. <laughs> I'd be like, this is your pudding. And if you do not eat this chicken you are not getting this pudding and I, I would try and force myself to have the pudding etc so <laughs> so I actually did eat quite a lot of meat when I was growing up mm. uh, and it, the cruelty aspect of uh, farming actually was the thing that drew me into plant-based eating yeah and I remember watching a documentary that Jamie Oliver did years and years ago about chickens and it was awful watching these mm. chickens that can't even walk because they've been fed so yeah. much food in order to fatten them up. Anyway, I won't... It's really distressing. It is distressing. Um, but I think as well, just to note, that a plant-based diet, which is something that I think Charlotte and I both consider ourselves, um, uh, that we have, means that plants are the base. Yeah. And it means that you Doesn't then mean it's exclusive. Can, exactly. And then you can build upon makes that Makes it sound base. like a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in a monogamous um, relationship with and, plants. And it's just about... It's, Oh, I <laughs> it's just it's about having more plants yeah having a plant base you want your diet to be plant-based mm -hmm. no matter you know whether you want to keep eating meat or pork or whatever mm -hmm. just have more plants or and that cheese or have, yeah. wh whatever it is and that's leads us very nicely into uh another podcast that we 
have really enjoyed. That um, my mum passed on to us. So my mum yes. is a nutritionist and a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. And so she's also and also a brilliant cook. So I've grown up with food and health has been a huge part of my Same. life. Yeah. And still is. I'm pretty sure that bonds us a lot, given that we yeah. have very similar upbringings in that way. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, but I really am so grateful for all of the knowledge that has been trickled down mm. um, over the years. And yeah, so she texted both of us and recommended this podcast, yeah. which is called The Doctor's Kitchen, mm-hmm. and it's presented by Dr. Rupi Orchula. And I actually first found him about a year ago on YouTube. Um, oh, so you already knew about him? Yeah, I already knew about him. Oh, yeah, I yeah, did yeah. not. Um, he did videos with a YouTuber that I watch called Zana Van Dyke, who does like fitness and bodybuilding and like weights and all that mm-hmm. fun stuff. And she converted to a plant based diet online. Um, like a lot of YouTubers actually, and uh, she used to do a lot of videos with the Dr. Rupi. So I actually had seen him before, but I I didn't put two and two together until I actually listened to the podcast. Yeah. And we will link the specific episode that we're talking about. But I loved that they went through kind of every single possible myth out there from lack of vitamins. Mm-hmm. lack of protein mm-hmm. uh not enjoying the sort of tastes yeah. of food um how much meat we should be eating dairy eggs yeah uh kind of where you're sourcing your meat from mm-hmm. uh, the evidence about that looking at it from a kind of i guess health perspective as well mm. as sustainability mm. so it was, it was i really, really liked all of his tips at the end they were mm. really good so it's things like Thinking about the plants as the main part, and then if you are having meat or fish or whatever, having that not so often, and thinking of it as an extra on the plant side, based, which is why rather than is such a great umbrella term, the that. meat at the centre of the meal, as we so often do. And you know what? Sometimes there are fantastic celebrations, and we have, and we want to have a roast dinner, or we've got Christmas, or whatever it is. Mm. But I think that too often, every single meal that people are having is based around meat as the main. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and what are the other things I love? Oh, things like just how to get more vegetables into your food and making your food more colourful. Love mm. that principle. Yeah. And how you can put spinach, if you like spinach, and just put it into everything. Have it pasta, pasta sauce, just put some spinach in. Absolutely. With what we did with the asparagus, with yeah. um, that chilli chili. sin carne. <laughs> um, and I also really liked how he talked about protein. I think, as you touched on, there that you can get loads of protein from plants i know it's such a myth but that was honestly the number one the number one question i got when i was vegetarian and then went vegan was what about your protein what Mm -hmm. about your protein and and i think that's i have very specific views about this but i think that is a myth that we've been fed by the animal agriculture industry uh in order to keep them in business um lean protein gotta have protein yeah eat animals and you've got to eat uh, muscle tissue to gain muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Um, you can have more than enough protein from a plant-based diet. Yeah. Um, and I also listened to a really good episode on his podcast about um, diabetes and also just gen- like uh, uh, where a colleague of his was came onto the podcast and they were sharing stories about why they were brought into sort of lifestyle and wellness and why as a doctor you need to really consider all of them and i also mm. listened to another episode about skin mm-hmm. and skin health and god you've been through them all <laughs> yeah i know i really enjoyed them um and i just love the medical aspect of it that he's talking about what his patients have been asking him and just 
the sort of overriding message I think of that podcast is that food is medicine, Absolutely. and this is the absolute like but you fundamental don't have to be a doc- ancient thing. Right, and you don't have to be a doctor to in, in yeah. to to indoctrinate that into yes. your own practices. Yeah, but it is amazing to also have a doctor doing that doing that and, and mm. actually spreading that to mm-hmm. his patients and actually my mum found this so she did her course i mean it was quite it was quite a while ago it's quite a few years ago that she ended up training to become a nutritionist in edinburgh and i think it was over about two years but one of the reasons that she decided to do it was because she wasn't she was able to give all of this nutritional advice to her patients yeah. but she wasn't qualified to do it mm. and therefore it held her back in the way that she could help her clients and so now that she's got this and she's since gone on to do some other qualifications as well but she is actually a qualified nutritionist and is able to Mm. tell people what will help you know if they've got this problem with their skin or um all sorts of things and in the episode about she's basically my doctor yeah no um and in the in the episode about skin uh it was so interesting because the the colleague of Dr. Rupees who was on said that actually in the 50s and 60s it was very normal uh, for a doctor or a dermatologist to recommend diet related things when talking about skin. It's like, okay, avoid fizzy drinks, avoid chocolates and sweets. Mm-hmm. And then in the 70s and 80s when uh, several big pharmaceutical companies obviously did lots of studies to try and discredit completely the link between diet and skin yeah and just said actually no it's solely mm. based on this medication mm. and there's so much corruption when it comes to the food and drink industry i know and that goes and into the agri- animal agriculture as well and yeah. the dairy industry yeah so much so mm. uh but i think all of these things are coming out now and my mom is definitely someone who has been so ahead of her time mm. for so long and everyone i mean everyone still thinks she's a little bit mad mm. but definitely less so now mm. because it's so much more normal to be really thinking carefully about what you're eating and having more plants and, being, and, and, and it, that thinking about your, what well. you're eating and how you're feeling yeah. and the links between food and health and well-being yeah. are just so much more talked about and established in a way that they weren't 10, 15 years ago when she was you know, trying to revolutionise our school dinners. <laughs> I did healthy lunch boxes. I started the healthy lunchbox com- competition when I was in year six. Did you and win it? No, I, I ran it. Wow! With the headmaster. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, that is how so much what, my parents influenced it was a, me. It was a competition for the healthiest lunchbox. Yeah, so every week I'd give a certificate to the person with the healthiest <laughs> oh lunchbox. God, Holier God. than thou is what I was doing. <laughs> my lunchbox was squeaky clean. I literally had a sandwich. It was always tuna sandwich with a hot, like rye bread basically <laughs> carrots and hummus some organic yo valley yogurt and then maybe if i was lucky some kettle chips in a plastic bag and that was yes. my lunch every day and i used to try and trade for other chocolates and i would just see the kids with the penguin bars i was so jealous um, but i also wanted to quickly touch upon i don't think we could talk about plant-based eating without talking about the avocado and I'm I so think, glad you said that yes. I was like we've got to talk about and so this. I will link this um I was on scouring through PubMed which sort of brought me back to my degree and it's basically a collation of loads of scientific papers and uh, studies cool. and essentially the reason why avocados are so good for us is they have incredibly high amounts of fiber high amounts of potassium sodium magnesium vitamins a e d c k b6 um the actual oil is 71 percent monounsaturated fat fatty acids which helps promote healthy lipid profiles and is very good 
for cardiovascular health and they keep you fuller for longer so mm-hmm. you feel very satisfied so let's just explain some of those things oh sorry so yeah. that, mean, that means good point good for your heart yeah very good, good for, for your heart. skin yes very good for your skin uh potassium good for blood pressure potassium and sodium really good for blood good pressure. for cholesterol mm-hmm. good for heart disease and also vitamin c immunity okay um and yeah. k again really good B vitamins, that's always something that people are very sceptical of mm-hmm. for plant-based diets, and that's really good for your uh, immune system, but also your nervous system as mm-hmm. well. And actually, that's one thing that I uh, love about plant-based diet is for anyone who has either had autoimmune issues, anxiety issues, anything where your nervous system has been acting up, even things like eczema, uh, plant-based food is so anti-inflammatory, and it's yeah. so good for that, even just on a mental health level let alone the actual physiological benefits so yeah yeah yeah. absolutely and that's why the avocado is actually quite a good thing that's become fashionable Mm. to eat now i think that's really good i think it must be the most fashionable food ever ever yeah i mean avocado and champagne so good it's so delicious i love i love avocado so much and champagne (laughs) 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 but the other thing that i would say is that I find it really weird how it's become this symbol of being a millennial. It is, it so <laughs> it's is. really funny. But I'll take it though. I do sort of wonder like, it is ridiculous that people mm. will spend eight, nine pounds on avocado on toast. But I think what they're spending the money on there is actually the place. The place and the the idea that I'm a person that eats avocado and toast on a Sunday at brunch. <laughs> You know, it's quite yeah. a shishy Because if you make it at home, do. it costs absolutely no. nothing. I don't I mean, they're not, nothing. they're not cheap. Avocados are expensive. They're not cheap, but you can get, I think it's like two for four pounds or... No, no four no, for four can... pounds, sorry, on offer at Sainsbury's. Okay. Um, you can I've, get them for a pound in Tesco. Exactly, so all four. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've done that many times before, mm. and you can also buy them two ripe and ready to go and then two ripen at home so yeah you can, exactly they yeah. last longer yeah you buy your own bread it doesn't mm. have to be you know expensive just mm. have it put mm. it with chili have it but the other thing is they since i've become mousse, I more that. veggie mm. um i well i've always done this avocados are a real treat because they are expensive mm. but if i'm not buying chicken and i'm not buying fish yeah. if i had previously been bought buying those that's mm. well over the price of an avocado so i think see it in the same way in some ways it's this treat and it's going to be mm. delicious and it's going to be like the main part of my meal mm. what a good meal and with hummus and falafel oh. oh yes yum anyway more recipes to come yes and uh we will post the ingredients yes um, and you try it out it's literally the most easy thing you just take all of those ingredients and f- put them in a pan and yeah. put them together and that's yeah. literally it. it's so easy but i think the cinnamon and the paprika yeah. and the smoked paprika smoked paprika and chili powder and soy sauce that is yeah, the golden i think that's the georgia combo i think that's my most mm. commonly used spices Definitely. So. <laughs> <laughs> love spices Thank you so much for listening to episode six of the Figure Podcast. Um, we are having so much fun recording and thank you so much uh, for all of your feedback. And like we said, we are now on Spotify, which is so exciting. So, so please, you can follow us. So please come and follow us. We would really love to have you. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Reviews particularly. Well, only if, well <laughs> it's a free country, but please give us a nice review. <laughs> Um, because it does help other people find yeah, it. Yeah, it, it really, really up. does. 
and if you're in Stitcher, you can do the same. Yep. And, also, and unfortunately, we've had to stop using SoundCloud because it only gives you a limit. So we've got our first three episodes on SoundCloud. But I think we've covered all bases now. We have Spotify. Anyone yes. can go on Spotify. Yes. Stitcher, Android, and Apple, Apple, iPhone. Cool. So until next week. Until next week. Bye-bye.